You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with all of you this morning. My name is Pastor Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is always a privilege to come and worship our Lord with you. So thank you, worship team, for leading us um, through song. And now we will look at God's word um, this morning. So we'll be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 23. So you can feel free to turn there, because that's where we're going to be. And I'm going to pray, and then we will dive into what the Lord has for us this morning. God, I want to come and just thank you. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here. Thank you for bringing them out. God, they are a wonderful church. It is a blessing and an honor and a privilege to serve alongside them, Lord. And so we thank you for them. God, I just um, pray right now that as we come to your word, God, that we would be um, humble. God, that we would be hungry. Lord, for your word, God, for your truth. Lord, that we would hear the things that you have in your word, that it would encourage us and challenge us, Lord that we would grow, God, in you. God, I do confess, Lord, like I told the first service, God, that I, I can so easily be distracted. God, my heart can so, on, my eyes can so easily wander off of eternity, Lord. And so I pray, God, that through um, your word, God, this morning, through the fellowship of believers, Lord, through worship, through prayer, God, that you would turn our hearts and our eyes that are so easy to wander back to you. God, and that we would um, be able to focus on you, that you would um, be top in our life, that you would be king, Lord. And so we pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right. So today we are looking at exhortations to the church. And exhortation basically just means to strongly encourage. That's what it means, is to strongly encourage. So that's what Paul's going to do for us. And like Alyssa kind of alluded to, it's basically um, a, a bunch of leftover thoughts that um, Paul has for us in um, Philippians and things that he wants to tell the Philippian church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at that this morning. And maybe you've experienced this in your own life um, in social media. Many of you know I'm a football fan. I love the Buffalo Bills. And so go Bills. And so I, I listen to a podcast about them every uh, leading up to games and in those games uh, and in the podcast, they, they talk about a lot of the main ideas, about the stuff that's going to happen in the, um, in the, not in the service, in the game. And then um, at the end, they have a final section where they talk about, it's called Leftover Thoughts. And it's like, so here's all the main points, here's all the main things I want you to know about the game. Okay, but then here's these other things that I also just want you to know. And that's kind of like what Paul's doing. Or maybe you're on an email list, right? And in the email list, you get... Um, here's all these different things that I want you to know through this email list. And then they've got that little related link section at the end. So it's, here's what I want you to know, but here's some more things that I want you to know. Or maybe you encounter that in the newspaper, right? You read the headlines, um, the big stories, the stuff that's got a lot of text, like that's the bulk of Philippians. But then there's those little parts, right? The little side articles that are small. They got a headline, just a little bit of text. Um, and they give you a number of different things, little snapshots of things that they want you to know or remember. And that's what we're looking at in our text 
this morning. So here's our outline. We're going to see six different things that um, um, Paul is going to call the church to do. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's read it, and then we'll dive through and work our way through the text together. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 2. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Yoda and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also, help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, as well as the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say again, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence of anything worthy of praise, think about these things. For the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. Not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content in whatever my circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my difficulty. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, um, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit. Let's go through and let's look um, at the different things that the text has for us. The first one is we see that we are encouraged to live in harmony. Right? And so we can see it right from the start here that there was a problem, right? And this was interesting about this problem is that we see here that these were two true believers, right? These were Christians. They were people who were partners in the gospel, right? And yet they had a conflict. And the conflict got so bad that they needed to get called out publicly, right, in a letter from a dude who's writing from prison far away, right? And there was a serious problem. And we've talked about this before. There's a, there's a struggle that we see over and over again in Philippians where they struggled as a church to live in harmony. They're exhorted multiple times to do this. And yet we know from studying God's word that it is important 
to live in harmony, right? And so just as the Philippian church struggle, I think we can often also struggle as Christians to um, live sometimes in harmony in the church. And yet we also know, and we've talked about this, that it is important, it is essential that we would guard the unity of the church, If you remember in John 17, what it says about unity, it says that in John 17, that unity is actually a primary method of evangelism for the church. It's a primary way that God is glorified in our world and that people know that God is real and good. And so this is something that we need to do even though we struggle with it, right? We struggle with it in marriages, we struggle with it in friendships, and in relationships, in our body, right? Not only in our church, right, but in every church. And here's why. We are sinful people, right? I'm a sinful person. And we're striving to do life together. And that is always going to bring challenges. And this is why we need to get good at this, right? We need to continue to grow at dealing with these challenges in a biblical way. And here Paul gives some interesting insight into how to do this well. If you look at verse 5 there, look what it says. It's interesting. It says, let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. I think verse 5 connects to those first three verses. Here's what John MacArthur says about um, a gentle spirit and what it means, what it's trying to convey. He says, this refers to the contentment with and generosity towards others. It can also refer to leniency towards the faults and failures of others. It can even refer to the patience in someone who submits to injustice or mistreatment without retaliating. Graciousness and humility encompasses all of the above. And what's interesting, I think, if you look at this list, is most of these are ways in which we can avoid a conflict arising. Right? Look at some of these. First one, generosity towards others. When you think of generosity towards others, being generous towards them in terms of conflict, I think what we can maybe just look at is say, let's think the best of someone instead of thinking the worst, right? When we think the best in someone, when someone does something that just kind of gets us the wrong way, right, that we would choose to think the best of them instead of automatically assuming the worst of them, that they did that on purpose, that they were doing that. Sometimes we read into things way too much instead of being generous towards others. In leniency and faults and failures, I think this reminds me of in First Peter, right, where he writes that love covers a multitude of sins, right? When people fail us, what we need to do in being lenient towards their faults and failings is we purposely, right, it's a choice, you have to purposely not embed the anger and frustration into your heart, right? As you're being hurt, knowing that they are sinner just like you, right? We can't expect perfection from them. Why? Because we know that we are not perfect. That's where theology becomes very practical, right? Looking to submitting to injustice, right? You can even refer to um, patience in someone who submits to injustice or mistreatment without retaliating, right? Choosing to not retaliate when you have every right to. This is challenging, right? And yes, and yet it is the right thing to do. And I think it reminds us of someone, right, whose name starts with J and ends in Isas, right? (laughs) This is what Jesus did for us, right? This is what he chose not to retaliate, despite he had every right to. And graciousness and humility. 
This is something that we could all use more of, couldn't we? Right? The ability to take some of the blame. We can often deal with conflict with such blinders on, right? Believing that things going wrong are entirely the other person's fault, right? And this is virtually never true. We almost always have blame for our part to play, right? Even if it's 5%. And the reality is that this graciousness and humility, humility is disarming. Humility disarms conflict. Taking a portion of the blame, right, disarms that conflict, recognizing what you could have done better. And so we see that, and the other things that I see quite often in the body, and sometimes we struggle in our conflict, is the refusal to apologize, right? Either because what we just talked about, it seems like it's all their fault, it's all their fault, or we can get in the mindset that the other person um, is being too sensitive or whatever blank you want to put in there. And so if I apologize to them, then I'm only going to enable their behavior, and I wouldn't want to do that. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you that it's not only wrong thinking, but it's very dangerous to do this. And to highlight that, I want you to picture um, standing in a courtroom, standing with God as the judge, and you standing on one side and the person you're in conflict with or maybe work conflict with on the other side. And as you're standing before the judge, you're thinking about what defense you are going to give. And so you stand there in your mind and you think and you think back to what you know of God and you're like, man, I know that I'm an incredibly sinful human being. And so to play the I'm perfect, I'm righteous, it's all that person's fault, that's a pretty risky card to play in front of the judge who's a holy and perfect God. We also see as you wrestle with this, right, you, you know that in God's word, over and over again, he charges us with keeping unity between brothers and sisters in the church. So playing the I don't want to enable their sin, so I'm not apologizing, is also a very risky play. Because the, you know the judge is going to turn to you, and he's going to tell you that you've just admitted that you're part of the disunity because you're not seeking reconciliation. And you won't have anything to do with that. I think what the judge wants to see from us is that disunity itself would break us. Right? The fact that someone would have something against me, whether I did it intentionally or not, would cause us to be broken. That we would want that relationship to be restored and understand our part to play in the disunity and admit that. With the goal of avoiding that behavior and avoiding the results in the future because we don't want it to go down this path again. Maybe you unintentionally hurt somebody in this way, but I don't want to do that thing again because I don't want to cause disunity again in God's church. I think that's what the judge is looking for. So I would encourage you, don't stand before the judge with flimsy defenses. The judge's son died for the church, so weigh your options carefully. We also see this um, from Ralph P. Martin. He says, the common mind that they are to share, that's sometimes, um, some of your translations will say that Paul encourages them to share a common mind. And so he's talking about that. In reconciliation and mutual love is one which sets the good of the church above personal interest and it finds its inspiration in the incarnate, right, that's when Jesus became human, Lord, and set the standard he expects of his people why do we do all this? Right? Why, do we, why are we called to live in harmony? It's for the good of the church. Right? And our inspiration is the gospel. Right? The God, everything that Christ endured on the cross that we deserved, and he deserved none of it. Right? It's for our sake. 
It's Christ offering us forgiveness for a debt that we could never repay. So how can we hold this tiny little debt against our brother or sister? When we can't forgive, we're demonstrating we don't understand what Jesus did for us. And we so often, I think, as part of the problem, look to sit in the judge's seat. We look to become the judge. As we deal with conflict, I think often we try to produce repentance in people by the way that we go about dealing with the conflict. Right? That's why we don't want to enable them in their sin, or we won't apologize because we think that we need to show them that it's their fault and it's their sin. Brothers and sisters, conviction is God's job, not ours. That is God's job to play in conflict. We are charged with guarding the unity in the church given by the Holy Spirit. So I would encourage you, don't sit in the judge's chair. Can you imagine what would happen if someone tried to sit in the judge's chair at a real courtroom? That wouldn't go well, would it? Right? They'd be taken down pretty fast and they'd be coming back in the courtroom again um, on more charges. Right? So I would encourage you, right, if we wouldn't do that in an earthly, to an earthly judge, don't do that to a heavenly judge. Don't try to sit in his chair. Let's live in harmony together. The second one is to rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We won't spend a lot of time here because we spent some time a couple of weeks ago talking about it. But if you missed this, here's the one-minute version. Joy is like our spiritual barometer. If your heart is satisfied in Christ, then you will have joy in the Lord. Right? That you're going to have joy in your life. If you start to lose your joy, then you know your heart is not in a healthy place because your heart's not fully satisfied in Christ. Joy also protects us from heartless religion and temptation. That's two of the things we talked about. But we see another thing here that joy is helpful in. In verse 6, we see that we're called not to be anxious. Right? Many times the Bible can also translate this as worry. Not to worry about anything, be anxious about anything. So I just want to pause here and acknowledge that um, discussing mental health requires um, a lot of time, attention, and nuance that we don't have here today. Um, I did a sermon on mental health a couple of years ago. Um, You could take a peek back in the archives at that. Um, But I just want you to know and acknowledge these two things. One, um, that how we use the word anxiety um, complicates our discussion because we use anxiety for everything from this moderate worry all the way over to very debilitating and painful and crippling attacks, right? And so please hear me when I say I'm not trying to just whitewash this with a three-minute conversation um, when it's very complex or give a one-size-fits-all answer. But at the same time, I do think we need to talk about it because anxiety and worry is something that is affecting our culture like crazy. We know Either we struggle with it ourselves or we know someone who does. Look at this stat. This is percentage of Canadians who have been diagnosed with anxiety by a medical professional as of 2018 by age. And so that's AKA before the pandemic, right? So the sample size for this um, study wasn't massive. It was 1,500 people. It's always good to check those things when you're looking at charts. Um, But I think it does reflect a lot of the other research that we've seen and that we know that this is a major struggle in our 
society. And so I just want you to know this isn't a one-size-fits-all, but at the same time, this is the truth. What we're going to talk about is found in God's Word, what we see here. And for some, what we're going to talk about is the answer. And for some, it's a helpful part of the equation. So we see here in verse 6 the call not to be anxious. And then we see the how, right? Don't be anxious, but where's the how? In everything by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, right? It's through prayer. It's bringing our requests to God. And this demonstrates why this is helpful, why this is linked to being anxious and worried, and why it's helpful is because it demonstrates a posture of trust in a God who is wise and sovereign and powerful and in control. It shows him that we trust him in spite of our circumstances, right? And so this display of trust, right, not trying to control things, not clinging to the things that are causing us this pain, and giving them to the Lord is a powerful antidote to worry and anxiety. And then what we see, right, that's produced through our trusting in an acknowledging of who God is is what? In the peace of God, right? God gives us peace. That's what we see there, right? And why? I think it's ultimately because the world can't do anything to us, right? Because if you think about the different levels and the different reasons why we can struggle with this, we can't talk about all of them, obviously. But if you go to the worst case scenario, if you die, right, which many of us um, can fear, right, we get to be with God. And so that kind of worry turns into something that is good instead of something that is to be feared and be anxious about, right? If we live in plenty, we get to use that for the kingdom of God. If we live this life with pain and sorrow from the the innumerable amount of things that could have caused that, right, which we all deal with, then what? We get to use our pain. We get to use our sorrow, our struggles, the things that many of you are going through, right? They become a powerful witness to both Christians and to non-Christians that we serve a God who is loving and good even when we're not doing well, right? And that is powerful, Right? And so when we do that, then we find a heart when we get satisfied in the Lord in spite of all the things that are swirling in our mind, despite all the things that are swirling around us. Our heart is satisfied in Christ either way. And that brings joy right? produced through the Spirit and found in the Lord. Next we see that we're called to fix our minds on God. If you look at verse 8, And nine, it says this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As for the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Have you ever really thought about what verse eight is saying? Verse eight is really great for putting on pillows and on walls and on Instagram, but what does it actually mean? I think it means that we should fix our minds on God and the things that God wants us to fix our mind on, right? Which contributes to what we just talked about, right? God is good, right? He's the giver of good gifts, right? And think about it. Who's the source of this stuff, right? If you look at whatever is right, right? Who's the source of right and truth? It's God. Who's the only one who's pure? It's God. Who's the one that's ultimately worthy of praise? It's God. 
right? We are to fix our minds on Christ. That's what we are to do. It's not just nice things. We're to fix our minds on God, right? We're to have the mind of Christ. That's one of the themes of Philippians, to have this mind of Christ, to think as he does. And then this next verse, verse nine, is interesting because there's a number of things we can learn from it. One of the things we can learn is that it tells us that we, right, as Christians in the body, in the church, have an opportunity, despite our sinning, despite our failures, despite all the times I screw up, to point brothers and sisters to have the mind of Christ, towards the mind of Christ, right? That if we do these things that they outline here, that the God of peace will be with them, right? And then the connection's easy. Why is the God of peace with you, right? It's because you're thinking and acting the way God wants you to, the way he's called you to, right? That's when God will be with you because you are with him and you're doing what he says, right? And so Paul gives himself as the example four ways that he did this for the Philippian church. Look at verse nine, you can see them. What did he do? They learned from him, they received from him, they heard from him, and they saw in him. So notice the first three. They're all centered around what? They're all centered around learning, right? And this is why we value Sunday mornings so much, right? And this is why I get knots in my stomach every time that I walk up here. Because what we are doing right now is eternally significant and important, right? Because learning about God himself and learning about how he's called you to live is absolutely essential in the Christian life. And then notice the fourth one. What did he do? They saw, right? He demonstrated it in the way that he lived. And I think this is a good time for us right, to do a little checkup and ask, how are you using your time? If you remember a couple months ago, we, we gave that challenge to you and said, how are you using the time that God has given you? How are you structuring your lives, right? We even pulled back on some of the programs, things that we were expecting and asking of you as a church to say, we are not going to be the reason that you don't go out and live a Christian life that is faithful in everything that God's called you to do, not just a few things, right? And so I would ask you, how have you taken your time? We are all in different life circumstances. We all have different challenges and struggles and pulls on our schedule. But I would ask you, are you being faithful to God in just some of the things that he's called you to do? Or are you striving, right? Not perfectly. None of us are going to be perfect at this stuff. But are you implementing? Are you strategizing? Did you put even a little thing here? It's like, yeah, God, I want to be faithful in this. I'm going to start with something small. I want to be faithful in this. Don't just be faithful in two or three things. Let's be faithful in everything that God is calling us towards. Verse 9 is also a good springboard to talk about spiritual growth, right? Because we talk about this lots, don't we? We're like, I want to grow spiritually. I want to grow spiritually. How do you do that? How do you grow spiritually? Do you know? I think um, it's a very complex um, conversation, but I think there's four essential ingredients, right, to how you grow as a Christian, right? If you actually really want God to change you. Here's the first one. It's humility. If you want to grow, you need to be humble. You need to be a humble person. Number two, if you want to grow, you need to be teachable. You need to be a teachable person. Number three is you need to be obedient. And number four is you need to do all of those things in the power of the Holy Spirit, not on your own. If you do them on your own, you will fail. 
right? So let's look at those quickly, right? We, if we want to be a humble person, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit when he shows us through his word, right, or through other believers where we're falling short, where we fail, right? And yet so often our first response is, whoa, right? Walls, right? Instead, we need to be humble, right? Set aside our pride that we would want to know that we would get to the point where David, he's like, search me, God. Show me the stuff that's messed up. Show me my sin. I don't want that. Are we humble to that point? Number two, we have to have a desire, right, to be taught by the Holy Spirit, right, and by other Christians. Are you teachable? Are you working on being more teachable? What do you do to prepare for Sunday so that you are ready to hear from God's word? What do you do to prepare for the other places in your life where I pray that you are growing, where you're going to learn more about God? Right? Are you learning on how to learn better? Right? Do you, you're like, man, I know that this thing distracts me, so I'm not doing that. Right? Or I know that I've got to pray before I end up at church so my mind doesn't start wandering so that I can show up and have 40 minutes where my mind is ready and focused. Are you working on being even more teachable? We want to be teachable people. And then we need to put what we learn and then what we are taught into practice, right? And that's, again, in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We can't do these things on our own. We talked about that. They're useless if they're on their own. They're good fruit when they come from the Lord. And I think the final thing that we can learn from verse 9 is that our false Canadian humility is not always helpful or godly in the church. Let me ask you a question. Would you dare to do what Paul does in verse 9? Could you rightly say what Paul says in verse 9? Right, look at this. As for the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Are you living your life in a way that you would hold up your life to the church and say, follow the things that I've taught you, follow the ways that I live my life, then the God of peace will be with you if you do those things? It's an interesting question to ponder. What I believe Paul um, allows Paul to tell us these things and to act this way is that he was truly and genuinely sold out for the Lord, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain, right? And He's also got the humility on the other end, right, when he fails. You remember what he writes? He's like, of all these sinners, I'm the worst. I'm the worst of it. It's a mindset, understanding his sin, what he was given by God, by Jesus through the gospel, right? If you seek to do this in your life, both non-Christians and Christians, right, if you even make yourself known as a Christian at work, right, non-Christians and Christians will get on you, right, Four are the things in your life that doesn't line up with God's word. And so some of us get deathly afraid of that, and so we don't tell anybody at work, or we don't try to do anything to be helpful um, in the church in this way, because we're afraid we're going to get called out for something we're not doing right. And the question I would ask is, why? Why do we do that? Because three simple words cut the legs right out from under those accusations. And here's the three simple words. You are right. You're right. That thing that you saw in my life, that's not of the Lord. You're right. That sin that you called out in me, you're right. That's sin. That doesn't glorify God. Why are we so afraid to just say, you're right. I failed. I'm not perfect. We've got to stop being so afraid of those things. 
right? But I also believe as Christians, right, we need to stop wallowing this fear that um, we're going to be exposed either as being not perfect, right? Because again, we know we're not perfect. So trying to hide it, right? Or also fearing that people will think that we're prideful if we say what Paul says. See if this tracks for you as it tracked for me as I was wrestling with this. I don't just want Christians who identify with my struggles in my life. Now, that's helpful sometimes, isn't it? Right? It's helpful to have someone that's right and good, to have someone come alongside and say, hey, look, I'm struggling with this too. That's okay. But I also want Christians in my life who've had victory over sin, who've had victory in sanctification, who have learned things about the Lord that God has not yet to teach me. And I want to learn from them that they would be willing to show me those things. Right? Do we not want that? And I'd rather, and I prefer to not have to drag it out of them. I prefer to be with them and be like, this is the thing God's taught me. This is the thing that's working well in my life. Right? That that would be the center of more of our conversations. And we wouldn't have to drag it out of us so often. Right? So I would say be humble. Be humble where you struggle. This is wise. This is good to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm failing in this. I'm not doing great. But it's also okay in the areas that are going well to be honest and come to people and say, hey, this discipleship thing that's working in my family, I want that for you too. Maybe you can use it. Maybe you can adapt it, right? That it would be good for you, right? Or I found victory over my anger in this area. Here's what God has taught me about it. Here's what's helping me. I pray that it would help you, right? Or my marriage wasn't great, but here's where it's improving and here's why. Here's what God is showing me. I pray that that would be a blessing to you, right? Where I'm really satisfied in my singleness when most of my friends aren't and here's the things that God showed me that's been the key to that. 